Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're coming into our webcast today. We are broadcasting season number two, episode number 13. And uh, I don't think there is a topic that I would like to approach more than the future of work, uh, and particularly when it comes to culture and leadership. So when we had scribed this agenda out in January and had this on our list, little did we know how important the workplace and the future of work was gonna become post pandemic. And so I think some of our observations might have still been the same ones we had in January, but I think this, this um, hour that we're gonna to spend together might feel a little bit different post pandemic. I wanna welcome uh, Andrew Cates, my co-host on all of these webcasts. Andrea, welcome into the fold. Andrea's got a brand new, oh, she's muted, I believe. Um, That's my, it's my favorite topic, looking forward to it. Well, it's unfortunate, too, because Andrew's got a brand new spanking mic. Um, so the sound fidelity that you'll be hearing her today is uh, immaculate. And once again, I want to thank Joanne for corralling everybody and doing everything in the background to make all of these episodes work. Um, fairly busy chart here, but uh, there's a group that out of the pandemic we had formed to actually make sense of it. Um, and so it was called the Grace Swan Guild. We actually did a really deep dive on leadership. And I won't go through every single one of these eight um, different variables, but it felt like in the first four to eight weeks, Andrea, that we we're all in response mode. What are we gonna do? What has just happened? Uh, how, do we, how do we react? How do we make sure we're safe? How do we make sure that our employees are taken care of? I think for the most part, most of our businesses you know, governments, uh, causes, they're probably somewhere within the gray box of recovery right now, but they really should be thinking about the blue box of reimagination. And so we looked at kind of eight different variables and I won't go through all of them, but it does speak to a new breed of leadership that I think this type of crisis demands and may continue to require as we move forward in the future. I'm not too sure if you've got thoughts in terms of what some of those things are. Do you want to save some of your breath for, for later as we talk about some of the things? Um, on I, our I just have one comment that's the overarching for today. It has a lot to do with the research and, and as you mentioned, the Grace Swan Guild and having sensors in the market, observing the issues in the beginning with this response, it was kind of like 911, deer in the headlights. And then it turned into this might last a little longer. And so it was, wow, this might be kind of temporary slash permanent. And now people are, I think, entering that world where I think both of the things we'll talk about today, from the time perspective, this could be long lasting in terms of this isn't just a wake up call. It might be a, a new way of sleeping no, <laughs> or totally. a way of being awake. Um, and I think that the second thing is that we think I know you and I are in agreement about this. We think that there's yet another stage to come. And so this is where we feel like we're on the brink of something really exciting, which is why this is a great topic for today. And I would say, although we don't have it up here as a chart, we looked at, we asked um, a number of enlightened people, what's really changed in this pandemic? So if we look back five years from now, what will be the fundamental shift that happened? And as much as healthcare, has gone through a massive um, bit of transformation and we've all become digitized, like grandparents are proficient in terms of ordering on Amazon now where they would have probably resisted previously. The number one thing, the number one thing that people say will have irrevocably changed is the workplace and how we do work. And so naturally it's probably convenient we're having this topic today. We did an analysis of the 50 top articles. So this is kind of Google's, Google's sense of, you know, what was being talked about in terms of post-pandemic uh, recovery on leadership. So not just what happened right away, but how are we going to exit this and how are we going to lead differently? I wanted to touch on the top five, not all 15. I, I like long lists, but I think it probably warrants a little bit of attention here to talk about the top five on our list that, uh, that surfaced across everybody's analysis. Um, the first one was just, you know, there's a real sense of empathy I find amongst leaders nowadays. Um, my hope is it continues. I have some fears, but certainly number one of the box was I give mainly businesses and governments a passing grade in terms of treating employees fairly, treating them, treating them with some compassion and treating them almost as whole people where, you know, they have families, they have to take care of people, they have their own, you know, aged or health impaired people that are, they're probably very concerned about. And, I don't know what you think, Andrew, but I think 
I would say, I'm not too sure if it's an A grade, but I'd certainly give a B or a, a high C grade in terms of how businesses have reacted to this pandemic. I think one of the things that we learned a couple of webcasts ago from Zev Newworth, who is a physician and um, has a lot of vision around this is basically that um, healthcare went fast. And then I think it was Ted Graham, is that his name for the person from General Motors who said, we're all in the healthcare business now. And so the combination of those two, being able to respond quickly and change, and also acknowledging that like it or not, health and human safety was for the first time everybody's job. We didn't know what a virus was. We all had to learn that. We didn't really know what responsible behavior was. And, and also taking care of people isn't just giving them a desk anymore and giving them technology. So looking at the whole person, including, and that, as you know, you and I have talked about, leads into childcare, education. Suddenly that was all right in front of us. So I think it's the first time within my lifetime, at least, that all of those came into the, what does a leader have to be good at category? Exactly, right? I think, uh, and sometimes we, we find the leaders that we hire you know, don't have that broad set of skill sets. Uh, and then other times we find surprisingly, wow, they truly do understand that empathetic gene that, um, you know, rallies people around them. So I know we've got um, the chat box open. Um, the luxury of it just being myself and Andrea today is we don't have three other panelists that we feel like we all have to get within the hour. So um, if we don't answer the questions throughout, certainly there'll be time at the end of this to actually go through any of the, uh, um, the audience's questions. I'll just go two, through two and two, three, four, and five. Showing resilience, I think, um, whether you're in industry, you know, in the crosshairs of the pandemic or somebody that perhaps is on the outskirts of it, I think all of us have had to show a little bit of, you know what, we're gonna get through this. There's gonna be another side to this. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it's shown some of our better sides. Um, certainly one of the interest areas myself and Andrea have is um, we are not going back to work the way we used to do it. Uh, if you look at corporate real estate, if you look at a number of different companies that, you know, are in the business of corporate leasing, um, it's going to be radically different. And so, you know, I think my stat was 40% of companies uh, are seriously looking at making remote work uh, in a very large fashion, um, kind of the norm for the future. And what is that what does that impact have in terms of leadership? What does it have on culture? What does it have in terms of building, you know, business models that everybody can align by? Reimagining the new normal, the fact that we are going to get to a new place at some point where there will be a, an equilibrium, how fast we get there, how radically different we'll get there and how, you know, businesses or governments capture value differently is gonna be interesting. And finally, and maybe I'll allow you to chime in on this one, Andrew, just, the whole idea that purpose and values should drive behavior, because I think oftentimes when we're busy, when we're racing quarter to quarter, purpose and values are those type of things that you go, yeah, 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 this is all on purpose and values, but it's really not the driving factor behind major business decisions. And I, I, I hopefully have seen a bit of a change in that. I'm not too sure if you have. I think we used to say things like transparency. We used to say things like actor truth, but Lately, when you feel like it's not just your 401k or your job um, evaluation or the work that you're doing, but it's actually the health and safety of yourself, the figuring out of how you're going to make, we used to call it work-life balance. I don't think we'll ever call it that anymore. When we have children sitting there and our cats on our laps and we're trying to do quarterly earnings reports, I mean, it's a different world. And so companies have come out well, and we'll talk about this another time, and companies have come out not so well. Agreed. And the last chart that I'm sharing from the Gray Swan Guild, and at the end of this presentation, um, we'll, we'll do a little bit of a, a sell job perhaps on the Gray Swan Guild in terms of if there are people out there trying to make sense of the world that you might have found your tribe within this group. We got together and asked people, okay, amongst these 16 different groups, you know, who um, do you now trust either more or less or about the same? And business kind of was in the middle ground. I think small business, we've, we've seen how it's been buffeted around, particularly if you're in retail, um, you know, generally a little bit above. Large business, um, potentially this is just something that large business can't escape at times. They're a little bit below. Um, and a raft of people in between. I think the other highlight from this chart would be if you're in healthcare, um, and my hope is this continues for the next two or three years. If you're in healthcare, you know we have come out of this thinking a lot more about you in terms of just um, 
you know, what heroes you truly are. I mean, we use the word hero altogether too often, but if you think about just all the stories that have come out in terms of people stepping up, putting their own safety in the line of fire, um, you know, I can't imagine four or five years from now people going, oh, we have to chop healthcare a lot because of this or that reason based on what we've evidenced here. On the other side, you've got, you know, media, religion, um, some level of travel and tourism and hotels down at the bottom. And so there is some questions in terms of, okay, great. Uh, some of those might be polarizing to begin with, but, um, you know, what can we latch onto as um, things in our life that we can, we can trust? So I don't know if you have any further thoughts on this, Jordan, Andrew. No, we're going to be talking about trust a lot. Same thing. It used to be a word. Now it's a must have. And yeah, let's, let's get it. Let's get into it. So um, as an expectation of this um, webcast, uh, we said we we're going to provide kind of a glimpse at what some of the new realities were. I think uh, you've got five, I've got five that affect kind of our future of work. Um, why don't you take me through yours, Andrew? What uh, five did you come up with? Well, my absolute number one, and sometimes it's the, the last book read, is Ethics and Trust Plus Plus. And whenever we put plus plus in future proofing, it means that there's more to the standard definition. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because everybody talks about AI, and I'll reference this book that um, I've been reading called Competing in the Age of AI. It's a really good book. And it's just part of the conversation around what it really takes, because it's really not about nobody's going to get permission to do AI if we don't trust you. Nobody's going to get permission to do touchless payments, which have come out as part of the pandemic. You know, we all had to figure out touchless, although many countries and, and regions had this going already. But I think that the biggest thing is that this, this feeling, when your health and safety is on the line, you're really going to look deeply at who you're doing business with. We'll also talk about tribes in a little bit. The people that you create as your small circle of affiliation are people that you capital T trust. And what that means is you trust people with telling you that they're gonna have a, a policy that's gonna work. It means that you trust the data. If there's data to be had and you don't trust where it's coming from or what it's gonna, what's gonna be done with it. And this has been elevated to the top level of anything. And I know also from the public perspective, people agree with this. So I, I believe that it's that this notion of how you develop a strategy and leadership when algorithms and networks are really running this world perhaps and why and touchless payments are part of the everyday one day you sit there and think wait a minute you know like facial recognition it's great you know but now we know that oh our gps um phone our gps capability on our phones is part of what was able to keep us safe but you start thinking what else do they know about us and so yeah. that fine line has been really brought to the forefront i think that's the first one yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought it up, too, because there's, there's a bad side to it, too. Oftentimes, futurists and people that are asked to, you know, pronounce about the future always have a positive future, right? Um, and it, can't, it isn't always positive. And so I think ethics and trust is one of those little two sides of the coins where it's like, is this going to go kind of more Star Trek or more kind of Black Mirror in terms of how things might uh, transpire? Completely. Now talk to me about the second one, talent and finding tribes. Um, and well, I, I love I what's said, in your brackets too. Yeah, ge geography neutral. So first of all, and later we're gonna talk about Fiverr as if Fiverr, which is a, a way that you can get uh, temporary workers, if it were really with five-year-olds. Um, and I said something glibly the other day that started to real resonate as a big idea. And that is that A, I live in the Sil in Silicon Valley slash Bay Area in, in the United States. and they make announcements that there won't be headquarters the same way anymore. Um, by the way, just getting up to Salesforce Tower to the 28th floor, you know, that's like a two hour concept now, you know, because you have to social distance. So, so some of the a, a, appeal and attraction of headquarters has diminished completely. And what that also means, so the first part of this is geography neutral. So if, if you don't all have to live close to headquarters, well, it's really expensive to live in some of the places that were where the headquarters are. So first of all, geography, whoever can do that job doesn't have to be willing to move to these expensive places anymore. So there's a whole domino effect there in terms of what's going to happen to commercial real estate, et cetera. But in terms of talent, you could literally be anywhere and get the job done and be just as competitive 
in the market as someone who's geog geographically located to a headquarters. So what that means to me is there's a huge democratization. You can be on any continent, any age, because we don't know how old someone is. When they, when they supply the work, the work product, we don't necessarily know who they are. So this no notion of geography neutrality also means that you can be, um, we'll talk later about any age. We don't know if the person is 50 or 15 coming up with this really cool, whatever it is, you know, it could be coding in Python, it could be whatever, it could be a product idea. And the, and the second part of that is that that means that tribes that used to be geography centric, you know, everybody in the coffee shop close to the headquarter, everybody in Google having cool lunches together or snacks at a headquarters. Now these tribes are going to be connected with, I call them tethers that are electronic, digital and virtual. So tribes are people who are birds of a feather that have something in common, but not necessarily what we used to have in common. That's what, that's what we mean by talent and, and the tribes. I feel a little bit melancholic about that. I always used to love my coffee shop and have these collisions of conversation. <laughs> uh, maybe I just have good coffee shops, but you're right. It's, uh, you know, I do think about all these places, um, head offices that created these enormously wonderful things that were supposed to produce collaboration. I'm not too sure if they ever did, but you know, if we're out of sync with actually kind of going into a head office, I'm not too sure how we have these collisions in the future. I'm not too sure if the technology is there yet, but it should be soon. Um, perpetual refresh. We use this word a lot. I'm, I'm sure if I jumped online, Andrew Cates and perpetual refresh, <laughs> Google would be front page probably. Yeah. Um, talk to me about what this is all about. Yeah, so there are a couple of phrases that we coined in the world of future-proofing next. Perpetual refresh is one of our favorites because it's a sense that we sort of got it from, there was a book by Satya Nadella called Hit Refresh, and it was this feeling of how a large company becomes a phoenix, rebuilds itself after a time of, of stability or a time of, of decline, depending. And stability or growth can be just as, just as damning, in a sense. Perpetual refresh is this feeling, and we call it skilling as a service. The, that competitive advantage right now is the speed of being able to learn and unlearn, the ability to be able to get better at certain key competencies that are, first of all, you know, coming faster than we ever thought before. Most jobs and, and things that are coming at us aren't even job descriptions yet. So the, the feeling of how do we get better, and I think that, you know, pandemic's been good for that because people have a bit more time on their hand that they used to use commuting. So it's like, oh, I think I'll learn Mandarin. Oh, I think I'll finally figure out, take that Andrew Ng course in, uh, in uh, machine learning. Oh, I think, and all of the things that we had as things we intended to learn, to upskill and reskill, imagining that this is a new, re new requirement for all of us to, be, to have part of us be in a state of what we call perpetual refresh. We have the skill. Absolutely. Is it getting better? Is it refreshed? Did we unlearn something because it was an anchoring bias that was keeping us from moving forward? So this is a big idea. And, and once again, all five of these are the ones where if I were in charge of a company today, I would get good at all five of these. No, that's great. I think that the notion that we get our education in the first four years of our adult life, and then, you know, uh, there are various professions. I came from one marketing where the amount of reinvestment of time and energy in terms of what you're doing, you know, in a training type of setting, um, it's so minimal. Like uh, I'm sure they're learning on the job, but um, yeah, I think that's changed forever. Number four, human expression. I never thought, because I've always been in business and strategy and, and corporate leadership, and I never thought that human expression, and by that, I don't mean facial expression. Uh, I mean the expression of our humanness. There's a community that I, I'm part of and that I follow called the House of Beautiful Business. And the way that they've been getting us together during the pandemic is like this past Sunday, they had choreographers from the Stuttgart Ballet having us move together. Uh, people at Moen and we, we have a colleague, Moises Noreña, who's telling us that they're discovering that there's a do-it-yourself gene that's coming out strong as people are at home more. So, you know, it used to be that someone would come and fix things for us. And now it's like, you know, I haven't, like, I personally hadn't fixed a sink since I was in university. <laughs> and suddenly it's like, wait a minute, I, I, this could be fun. And it's all this feeling of this expression of humanness and making. And the reason I think it's important for work is when we go, quote, back to work, 
there could be a lot more learn it yourself, do it yourself, figure it out yourself stuff that we want to be doing to express ourselves at work, not just to get a task done. Yeah. It is so interesting how transparent we've become, right? I think, uh, you know, how many Zooms have we been on where dogs and cats have gone through the background? Uh, you actually get to know your fellow employee or your fellow person that you work with. Um, there's this weird paradox that the more Zoom we've become, the more kind of in tune with it, each of our personal and human lives uh, we, we've kind of got in touch with. All right, and then uh, your fifth one, location. Location is the obvious one. It's related to the geography thing of number two. But, but the difference is, because I used to think virtual reality, I mean, when I was in college, we had holograms, you know, that was a big thing. We would study black holes and holograms. And it was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I've never had, there's a, there's a book also called Uncanny, The Uncanny Valley, which is that feeling that you have when things are virtual reality almost. So hmm. it's kind of a creepy place where, hey, it's Sean kind of accepting he's a little rigid and he's answering the same question that he answered yesterday. You know, so it's The Uncanny Valley. Location for me, and the, you'll see my, um, my suggestion that we, that we embrace virtual reality in a new way. Um, my, my sense is that there's a feeling of place that's completely different. And, and like we were in Japan last year and we asked a six-year-old where her gran grandmother lives. And she literally held up an iPad and pointed and said, this is grandma's house. And you kind of turn it to the back and like grandma's in her backyard. So this feeling of location and being much more fluid, I think we have to acknowledge, um, I think, and we'll talk later about skewmorphs. And I see that somebody here uh, who's on the, in our participant group has worked with Steve Jobs, so they know what we're talking about. But um, let's be open-minded around what a location is. When Sean and I are together, what does that mean? Right, no, it's so good. Um... And I, I'm in Toronto here. And so Toronto kind of, most of the head offices in Canada collect in Toronto. And so there's almost an expectation that you will see me in my head office as a function of doing business. That's been completely disrupted. And so yeah, it's very interesting, the formula behind, you know, when are we meeting and for what reason are we meeting and what's the context, um, very important. All right, so you had built a list of five. I'm gonna share my list of five now, but. Let's do something different too. Um, there are people listening out there. Um, why don't you just surface kind of your own thoughts in terms of the new reality of future work? I'll, I'll be curious and we'll attach your name to it. And if we write it into a post, we'll certainly credit you uh, with whatever you came up with. Um, what that means is write it into the chat? Yeah, I think so, right? We would love that. That would be wonderful. We love to learn from the participants. So feel free to, yeah, add it into the chat. Uh, so, and uh, there's always an Easter egg somewhere where it's like, okay, I'm looking at 10 going purpose driven. How did that happen? So well, that's uh, when you're they, drunk and you're driven. It's a combination. Uh, apparently driven is a word because it didn't show up on the bell check. But um, so my five uh, for what it's worth, uh, we have a new streetwise empathetic CEO. And it's interesting, about two thirds of CEOs come in through the finance suite, uh, whether they're, they're lawyers with a really good understanding of you know, how, how business value and, um, and balance sheets work, or uh, they've been, you know, previous accountants or finance people. Um, I'm not too sure if they're the best group of people candidly in terms of understanding where the future skill set of the CEO should be. I think there are three words that come to mind when I think about what the new CEO demands. One is a level of empathy. Uh, I think they have to be in touch with the psyche of both their media teams and the entire company. Like the great CEOs that I know really have a pulse for what's going on and probably get out in front of some of the issues that end up, you know, bringing companies down. So that's one, I think empathy. Two, and you'll recall this, Andrew, we did um, a leadership uh, piece of research about what are the future-proofing skills of the world pre this pandemic. And the number one skill that was viewed by people as being uh, most important was adaptive intelligence. So how do you take a wide variety of intelligence and bring it into kind of a, a cogent argument? I think that's, that's even more important now as we look at business models that have changed almost overnight. Like if you don't understand that full environment, how are you supposed to pivot from a real world to a digital world? Very, very tough. And I think the final thing is sustainability. Um, We've paid a lot of lip service to global warming, to health, to diversity, to class and racial tension. I think um, somebody that's the CEO of the future really does have to be sensitized to a raft of very human, 
very global, very community-based issues. So, so for my money, I think the, the path to becoming a CEO, the traits that a CEO needs to exist, and potentially the skill set that they, uh, they have to have before they get into the suite is going to change. Um, the rise of the HR function, I have found that within corporate land, when I talk to people, the function that has got the biggest um, passing grade within this pandemic is human resources. And I'm not too sure, you know, you've got CFOs, you've got CMOs, you've got CIOs, you've got CSOs, you got a whole bunch of different, you know, C-suiters. HR, I would argue, has never been like the top four, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, respected functions within that. I think they've, they've been enablers and empowerers, but very rarely do I see HR people at the highest level lead the agenda. And I'm seeing that now, which is good to see. I think there's a people quotient that needs to be managed here. And I think given the proximity to the CEO throughout the last six months, I think the HR function will have a, uh, a very large rise over the next uh, year to two years. Um, all right, Andrea, it's like you're starting a company, you have to hire all these people now, you have to hire new people because you're now a digital company and you can't build culture like you used to. There's no employee awards at the end of the month that happens in your cafeteria. And even if you do have an intranet, you know, people really probably aren't reading it. So you probably only have one chance to make a really, really good impression. And I just think however many digital ways to actually onboard people effectively, there's probably going to be an overinvestment in onboarding people. Um, I just, it's, it's, it's the one chance to bring in. I think there'll be a lot of rotation as well. They're going to be more gig workers. They're going to be more remote workers. And so uh, I think that's a factor to take into consideration. Last couple here, tech engagement that doesn't feel like tech. Um, I've seen some rudimentary concepts around, okay, can you appear like you were in a conference room and use augmented and virtual and mixed reality to see if you're there? It's not quite there yet. But I think over the next two or three years, there's gonna be a real premium on, how do we feel like we're meeting with each other? And if I'm doing employee opinion surveys, how does it look more like Kahoot or something that's colorful and interesting than just kind of your formulaic circa 1998 Microsoft form that you have to fill out? So I think that'll be something um, to look at. And I think we saw a lot of people have been saying this pandemic is more reflective of what was going on anyway, and we've just accelerated things. And I saw a number of things that pointed toward we uh, as businesses are increasingly being driven by purpose. You know, if, if we've commodified ourselves to the point where one insurance company doesn't, it looks like another insurance company, sometimes the only thing you can lean on is actually having a different purpose that you adhere to. And I think um, across all 25 industries we look at, I've seen purpose be an increasing um, kind of instrument in terms of how people use decisions and how they go about their business. So those are my five. I don't know if you uh, want to react. Well, I'll, to I'll comment on some stuff that's been going on in the chat, which is super interesting. I mean, one is a, an interesting preview to something we'll talk about in a little bit. The notion of is profit the only driver? So, you know, is it shareholder value? Is it stakeholder value? Is it impact measured by other things? And we had, I know, some really interesting conversations recently about um, you know, is it even, is, an, is there even going to be a world, especially with all the economic pressure, where you should judge success solely by profitability or shareholder value? And that's a really big idea. And then there's been a conversations around creativity and human values, and also how you do that with uh, the need for some time management, consistency of performance. So how will those two worlds interact. So lots and lots of uh, this and uh, lots of lots of conversations to set the tone for what's coming. It's a really interesting chat. We're excited. Thank you. And we'll probably write this up and, and, and include some of these comments. That was wonderful. So uh, we wanted to just kind of really hone in on, you know, depending on what part of the world you're in the last four to seven months, I suppose, in terms of what's really gone on and changed. Um, we have two, I think, what we'd call headlines um, that we want to expose. And Andrea, you know, Fortnite, where am I? What does this mean? I think I even asked you before the, uh, <laughs> the uh, webcast. It's like, all right, I'm putting this on screen, but what does it mean, Andrea? So we, we did the Future Proofing Awards and someone other than myself uh, brought up the fact that Travis Scott being on Fortnite means that 
you know, the, the, it's the dawning of a new era. I had talked earlier about holograms and, you know, having these stars come back from the dead and all of this. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. The world of gaming, and we'll also talk about Twitch and esports and just this world that is completely comfortable for a lot of people, probably five-year-olds to 12-year-olds don't even know there's a difference. But when Travis Scott had like 12.8 million people in a concert that took place within a game, um, that was like this new concept for me. There's a, there's a platform called Wave that we'll talk about a little bit. So this combination of where am I? Because in, in this virtual world, it used to be, as I said, the uncanny valley, like super clunky. And it's like, it was kind of like um, Pac-Man was at the game that was just clearly not reality. But, that, but that's changed so much. And I, so I feel like, number one, people, people's language is, oh, did, did you go to the Travis Scott concert? Well, going to a concert, they didn't even realize that they didn't go anywhere physically. And they felt as if they, the immersion in a virtual experience was going somewhere. And same thing with, with telephones. You know, when, when you talk about, oh, did you dial your grandmother? You know, the kids don't have any idea what a dial phone is. And so they're, they've, and we'll talk about skewmorphs, so like the, the physical embodiment of what that technology is all about doesn't even exist anymore. So I think that's about to happen. What happened with mobile phones, I think is about to happen with how we experience working. And sometimes I forget, like I'll go, oh yeah, I saw Sean the other day. Well, Sean and I live in different cities, but it doesn't feel like it at all to the point where I'd almost make an extra cup of coffee and say, Sean, do you want one? And that's, that's the blurring that I've seen for the first time over across this uncanny valley history. Wow, okay, now I understand it. I, I, and I'm like, <laughs> that makes sense, all right. Um, mine was my culture is on Zoom. Uh, and, and Zoom has either been a key enabler to get us through all of this, or at this point in time, maybe a little bit of all I can see is Hollywood squares of boxes of people online, and I spend all my day on here. Um, uh, recognition is like, I don't think we're getting together. Uh, I know Shopify in Canada said no one's outside of essential workers getting back to work till January. Like they made that call early. So this is a long-term kind of uh, discussion in terms of how do we create culture, which I think most of us who admit, admit is crucial to companies. How do we create culture online through video? And I think it's changed a couple of things. One, you know, people's homes need to change. So that's one thing, like just how does a company enable the extended work environment now, which includes home to actually be more effective, more, be more efficient, be more sensitized to the fact that there are people living in 500 square foot homes with four other people in the room as you're trying to conduct business. That's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, since what, the 1850s maybe, we've had a nine to five workday. I don't know about you, Andrew, but my workday seems to be shifting right now. Like it is, if not 24 hours, given some of the global work we've been doing, certainly even in a North American context, you know, you are running a retail shop right now if you're in the culture business. And so from seven in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, at minimum, you are um, kind, of, kind of interrupting, infiltrating, trying to get in front of some of the, the different things that could hit your culture differently. So how do you staff up for that? How do you use the tools that are at play to make sure that you can actually triage and diagnose what's really happening in a more than nine to five setting is really interesting. And I don't know if it's a buddy system, I don't know what it is, but it just, it just can't lean on one department to create culture. And I think that's maybe the challenge nowadays. I've seen HR practitioners and they look, God, they look so dead and tired because they've been on Zooms all day. How is it that you can actually kind of you know, get rid of some of the um, structures that are there and create almost these invisible kind of uh, different tribes that exist within companies. I'll use the word tribe um, and actually almost uh, match make them and get them together versus having to lean on some some existing hierarchy to do that for you. So that was my kind of I'm, I'm going to for fast forward to something we're going to talk about at the end and really hope everybody stays because Sean and I whacked out on what it would look like <laughs> taken to an extreme reality, but a little bit of push in the envelope in terms of what this would look like. And for instance, I remember working in Denmark, maybe about five years ago, and uh, this guy Henrik and I were working in the same room and we were interrupting each other for chat. But then all of a sudden we realized that we needed to do something physical and everybody puts on their headset. 
uh, we put on these crazy hats. And so if I had the hat on, it's like, please don't interrupt me. I'm in a certain mode. And uh, Adam Grant had a really good um, article the other day on boundaries. He thinks that people will go, I don't think, think that people will go back to business, by the way, the same way we used to, but he thinks that people want to go back to their offices, that there's this thought, that there's this longing for this boundary again between, you know, like, in, and we've talked about this, the Starbucks third place. It's like, I'm home, I'm dealing with children, I'm dealing with homework, et cetera. Now I need boundary from that. I need some this, I need some distance because now I'm going into this other mode where I'm expected to solve algorithms and figure out research and do that thing. And then I've got my friends and, you know, so you have these different realms. The realms are all mixed up now. And so yeah. we'll, we'll talk about, you know, at the end, we have a fun way that we've looked at how do you learn to do this well? And, and we have an idea for it that's a little outside the bell-shaped curve. There was a theory that, you know, to have a job or have an office in the future is going to be considered a perk. Like if you truly want to escape from whatever environment you're in um, currently at your home, that that would be a, a perk of being an executive or somebody that's a high performer that you are allowed that um, thing. So it's an interesting scenario. All right. We have five new models for future of work. Uh, Andrea, this is your list. Well, yeah. Well, there are two things I want to say first, because stale skewmorphs is something everyone has been dying to hear about. I mean, if you think that perpetual refresh is a, is a, just rolls off your tongue, then try stale skewmorphs. You know, so we're coming to that in a minute. But I wanted to mention that there's been some really interesting conversation about constellation of offices, you know, that, that you work and there's kind of this constellation feeling. And we have a friend at Industrious and, they're, and, and at Jones Lang LaSalle, and they're looking at these hybrid ways. And we'll, we'll talk about, um, we just did a future of travel last week and ways that people can, and I know it sounds lascivious, but Renting a hotel room by the hour used to mean you're up to no good. But if you're if you're if you're in a city and you need an hour of something away from your cat, away from your background noise, I've got a train that's always in the background. You know, rent by the hour hotels slash rent by the hour offices slash just in time constellations are a, a thing. And convergence, there's been some good talk about convergence, and I think that we'll also talk about this a little bit. That the the blurred lines um, that you know, we used to define things very kind of like metropolis was our mindset. That was work. And now it's kind of like work and live and play and cats and children and education and getting better as a person and meditating and all of that. So, so I think those are important constellations and convergence. Thank you from the chat. So, okay. So everybody needs to know what is a skewmorph. Um, I know some people in the audience already in the participant group already know this, but the way that I explain it is that um, on my computer, when I am about to put a document onto my desktop into a thing to get it out of my line of sight, it looks like a square, a rectangle with a little thing on top. Now, it's a file folder, but there are many people who don't understand that there was ever a physical cardboard thing that was usually manila that you would fold in half and put paper into. So they view it as what it is, whereas a skewmorph is something that looks like something that is now represented in digital form. Well, so that's a skewmorph and we can go off on that. And I think Steve Jobs was famous for talking about it as well. Um, the way that we use it at Future Proofing Next is that there's some stale skewmorphs. So let's have a meeting. Okay, so why am I sitting in front of a desk? Well, the skewmorph that I have for what I'm doing is probably from like CNN, you know, that I'm like in a newsroom so my mental image is I have to be sitting and I have to have like a microphone and it has to be lit because my skewmorph of what it is to work, for instance. Okay, where's my desk? Where's my group of colleagues? So we think that it's time to get rid of some of the stale ones, you know, and especially if things are anchoring biases towards something that's not serving us anymore. So the question would be for us as, as leaders, okay, what, why are we doing meetings this way? Why are we acting like it's a virtual conference table when conference tables had their own issues in the first place? So um, I know Microsoft Teams is trying to do things where we're kind of in a, in a different configuration, but we say, get rid of the stale skewmorphs. Don't just try to replicate digitally something that really was over anyway. So that's the first one. Um, I think the second one is in terms of, you know, how you get a team and culture on board with technology enabled workplace, gather differently. 
I mean, I think about Lego and play. And if I always dread it, it's like, oh God, the Monday morning stand up, shoot me. You know, I mean, you know, like there's this moment of dread in everyone's week. Oh, we're gonna go through the whatever it is. If there's dread associated with anything, is there a way that you can rethink the way that you engage? Because technology lets you do it. Why don't we start with music? I don't know. Why don't we start with uh, something? You know, there's all these different technologies, Mural, Miro. Are, are, why do we start the way we would start as if we were limited by um, the old way we did things? So Lego and play and the, the sense of, of creating together is another way to gather. Um, this gets back to what was said earlier, you know, this contribution be beyond capitalism. And I promise you, we didn't change the slides when we saw that, but we're completely aligned with this. You know, tap into the sense of what it means within a workforce to not just have the goal of the technology application be because this will help our bottom line. Because a lot of people have social values and customer values, not just shareholder values in mind. And as you said earlier, Sean, probably uh, plant, planet values and, and a sense of responsibility and perhaps a sense of well-being and, and sharing. So can you, is it, is it an oxymoron to say humanistic technology? Probably not. I think that there's a way to do that. Once again, we're going to keep talking about gaming and esports as inspiration. Um, I think that we start with, um, I don't know about you, but I usually start with like backslash colon dot dot, you know, colon backslash. I, I don't know why, that's the initial prompt. If the initial prompt where we're entering a game world or we're about to do an esport, there's a different sense of this technology is going to serve this world that we're creating instead of we're going to start with lines of code. And that, that mindset changes a lot. And then I think the last thing is it's incredible because a lot of the, um, I've been doing help desk things, how do I, and I Google it. And I look at a YouTube video and the person helping me learn to do whatever it is I need to do um, they're usually not in the United States. They're usually under 18 years old and they're already expert at, I had to learn iMovie. There was something in iMovie and the person was like 12 years old in a country, not the United States. So I thought, wow, I might actually hire people like this for things within companies. Um, so this ageism, whether it's old or young, I think, I think, you know, here we are, we're immersive. We're all playing the game and we don't need avatars per se, but certainly being open-minded to what our workforce looks like, I think is really huge, especially with technology where the expert might be the 12 year old that's been, you know, digital their whole lives. And there's a, I guess on all of this stuff too, Andrew bears some mention that um, there's a raft of people out there that, you know, uh, there's a risk of them being left behind, um, whether it's um, plant work or truck drivers or, you know, a number of different um, industries that from a white collar standpoint, we might only deal with them blushingly. And, and I don't know, sometimes I, I really do think, you know, everybody says AI promises there'll be more jobs down the road than less. And I am a tech optimist at the core of it. But I do have this really big concern that if somebody doesn't step up schools, governments, uh, empathetic business, that we're going to have a generation of over 40 somethings right now that will not be able to embrace the world that you've you've just outlined here. Uh, do you have the same one or do you think, do you have more hope than me? I have a lot more hope. I, I mean, and, and it's not just, oh, getting grandma to learn how to use Zoom, which everybody's had that experience. And it's, you know, I mean, that ha that can happen. But once that happens, the learning curve is actually not that slow, I know. right? Yeah. So I'm actually, for, for me, for instance, like with iMovie, there was a thing I couldn't do and it was keeping me from doing like 500 other things. And once this 12 year old taught it to me, it's like, great. And my backlog of what I could do then was very, very rapid. So I'm actually pretty optimistic. Okay. Well, those were interesting, um, truly. Um, I think, um, I know we have a report that we're going to produce at the end of the summer. My hope is we, we register that and that becomes a full section in terms of models. Um, we got to go through quickly on bridging gaps, but I think you've, you've got an interesting lens architecture or sorry, this is just a, a quickie in terms of what's the gap between where we are today and where we want to get to tomorrow. What's your, what's your two minutes? Yeah, mine's really simple because I really want to get to this um, aperture. So number one, you know, we used to say get out of the building, like customer discovery and, you know, get out of your mindset. Now, you, you know, like every day I give myself a challenge to do a deep dive into something I know nothing about. One day it was virology. I'm like, okay, time out. 
I need to go back to my viral, you know, my university classes in science and learn something. So I think getting out of your, your search, you're getting out of your typical search patterns and your typical media, super important. Um, you're about to see an aperture model. We want you to do one. We started it, but we really would love for you to build on it because these are really fantastic. And of course we love them because we made them up, but um, yeah, we think that. I think talking to your kids, I was talking to somebody the other day and um, they were doing like an interview, a professional interview, but as you said, Sean, kids are within earshot. So it's like, hey dad, what was that all about? It's like, oh, not, you know, none of your business. I'm like doing a thing. It's very serious adult stuff. It's like, well, it sounded like they, and you know, the child had an opinion and it was actually a pretty interesting opinion. So I think that, you know, allowing kids to go, that sounded boring. It's like, you know what? That was really boring. Why did I allow that meeting to happen being so boring? Um, so that's two. I, number three is co-creation. There's so many ways now. And, and the, the reason that we talk about gaming and esports and stuff is you can co-create, you can look over people's shoulders. You know, I can watch Sean do design and go, oh, that's how it's done. And so there's, there's so much more to be done, I think, with co-creation because you don't have to walk. I mean, I love water coolers, but you don't have to have a water cooler to bump into somebody. You can literally say, hey, let's do a Google Doc and just share ideas. Let's, let's make a slide deck together. There's so many simple ways to do it. And then, of course, much more complex ways to, to, to co-create, to, to develop things with our customers, with our stakeholders, with each other. Yeah, there's an interesting business model in there for some, somebody where it's just like, you know, how LinkedIn matches people that are out of work to people that are in work. Well, what about just people in work that want to match with each other? Like, I'm trying to learn something and I'm going to go outside my four walls to learn it. There should be some kind of matchmaker that does that, like a, a Tinder for similar kind of professional employees. Um, I don't know if it uh, certainly the, it has too much friction now to, to do it on a massive scale. For me, the three things, um, flatter structures. I mean, if you have less middle people from kind of like the frontline people that are probably closest to the experience of either your employees or your customers, and they're able to surface things to the people that might be in decision-making roles, it just makes sense that you're gonna be a faster, quicker, kind of uh, issues are gonna elevate themselves quickly. I know standardly most businesses may say they work a quarter, 30, 35% of the time on downstream stuff. So the stuff that doesn't hit your current business cycle. Um, we know that's not right. We know that generally in every quarter, people are rushing to get out. You know, can we get that account just to make our numbers look better for this quarter? And I really do think, you know, if, if people, the companies that come out of this pandemic looking better are the ones that had continued to invest on all their downstream stuff. And all they had to do was press a button to make all this stuff work. Now there's a whole bunch of companies trying to catch up. And I know we're doing a deep dive in AI shortly, Andrea. And I think, you know, I think AI is, I think somebody in one of our previous webcasts said, it's really a marketing term. Really what we're talking about right now is augmented intelligence. You know, the stuff is not smart enough to think by itself. It needs to sit alongside a human. And so there's an entire world and culture of how do we get AI to work with humans, not replace them, not threaten them. And I think um, that'll be an interesting area of study for us. All right. We said we're going to look at these lenses. So under the guise of leaping for leapfrogging past barriers, let's go through these. So everybody asks us, okay, future proofing next. First of all, what makes you so much better than a futurist? And we always say we're more practical than a futurist. And then they say, well, what makes you so much better than no offense to anybody who works for McKinsey, but you know, the typical consultants. And it's like, well, we start with tomorrow and work backwards, but it's not science fiction. So it's practical guidance. You know, we have all this and they're like, well, how do you do it? A very good question. That's a very good question. So this is how we do it to begin with. This is future-proofing 101. So we start with what we call an aperture because it's like a camera lens. And, we, and we, what, what we do is we understand that the most important first step is to get outside of our anchoring bias. Whatever we're thinking is the future in terms of potential, we need to have a new category. So for instance, what can we learn from? And I, I learned this a long time ago when I talked to Sharp Healthcare in uh, San Diego. And I said, how did you win the Baldridge Award? You know, you're amazing. What other hospitals did you study? And they said, hospitals, we studied Disney and we studied Ritz-Carlton. Like if we'd studied hospitals, we'd have a bigger emergency room. So we needed to get to the basics of, a, of an experience 
And for that, you need to look outside your industry. Um, so there, there's a whole chapter on that in the upcoming book. But anyway, so virtual, physical, and asynchronous and digital, you're like, wow, that's really new. Actually, not so much. We were talking, and uh, I think Bob's on the call, you know, we were talking to some people in, a, in, the, in the Future Proofing Awards about the advances that are made in Oculus, you know, the ability to actually do different kinds of things that are much more practical using a virtual reality environment. We talked about people, quote, showing up for a concert where they actually never left their seat, but they had the true feeling that they were somewhere else. And I always have to talk about soul machines where they have, the first demonstration I saw was in Barcelona last year um, when they showed Baby X, which has been around for a few years. But the ability to overcome the uncanny valley and have human bots that have empathy, that have eye movements, that have this real sense of, of, of humanness is truly bizarre. And it means that whatever we can do, the first thing we should say is, okay, if we're trying to create an environment that's really great, whether it's retail, whether it's a, a digital twin, you know, something in manufacturing, whether it's an agribusiness, what are the things we can learn from these other industries that have already done that well? So that's the first one. The second one, we talked earlier about the third place plus plus and this notion of boundaries and the Adam Grant idea and the just in time ability to, you know, do I need a hotel for a second? Well, you know, we need, as I said, I might have a conference call and I just need two hours of a real background with quiet, without a train, without my kids around, all of that. So what, has, what have people done that's already this third place? So the, the thing on the top right is a digital twinning and the technology for digital twinning that's come to the point where it's, it's just second nature for, for corporations now to be able to do digital twins. What that means is that you can set up, like you used to have a train track <clears throat> in model trains where you could have like Chicago, but it was really small. Well, you can do that with a whole work environment now. So what does that mean in terms of RFID, in terms of the ability to use the digital information differently and create a sense of a place that is actually digitally enabled as a third place? The uh, multi-generational we talked about, but you know, Lego's doing it well. We were talking about Fiverr, if it were run by five-year-olds, Disney. People really love the ability to, um, to, to engage together and not just experience things passively or follow rules, but this is really where you overcome the metropolis mindset. Then there are companies that are so loyal. I mean, I've, lo I've loved Peloton for years. I know they're a subscription model and we think that forever transaction companies are fantastic, but how do you create a tribe of, with your employees? You know, how do you, how do you do that? Twitch is a place where people watch other people doing things in, in, in an esports environment. So how do we create tribes with our employees that are so loyal that we really feel a sense of true affiliation, not just a sense of brand. Perpetual refresh, everybody should take classes in any kinds of ways. And, and the number one complaint that we've heard is that parents feel that universities and schools have done a really substandard job of educating our kids during the pandemic. And people are still, I won't say who, but Ivy League colleges are planning to charge full tuition next year in the United States for, you know, I think that's like 60,000 US dollars, something around there for an environment that people feel is substandard. Uh, gotta do better. Let's learn from anyone that's doing an immersive better. Making, doing, collaborating. So Wave is a, is a, is a platform I read about, I haven't used it yet, but it's a music, uh, uh, concert experience and creation platform. Canva is a company out of um, Australia that allows people to create artwork without the desire. I'm not saying it's as good, but it certainly allows everyone to get a maker gene, you know, to scratch that itch. Mo and we talked about do-it-yourselfers. You know, what are the people in other industries that have really done well at making, doing, and collaborating? And in what ways could we as business leaders incorporate that insight into our companies? And finally is the, the feeling that you should pick your own category. And we would love for you to do that in the chat. You know, what category do you think is the mojo, the zeitgeist, the gestalt that your company needs to get ahead? And how can you leapfrog by looking at other industries that have already done that well. 
Fascinating. Fascinating, Andrea. You've taken something that we use for our regular client work and, and I think appropriately applied it to, to our webcast today. So I'll, I'll be interested to see what people say are their lenses within their respective worlds on chat. So I'm going to ask maybe, Andrew, if you can look at chat, because I know we've had a number of different comments in there and maybe collect kind of the big ones. I'm going to go through two minutes of just housekeeping work and then maybe we can uh, fall back on some of the big headlines from chat, maybe either answer or, or provide some perspective. Um, we will be surfacing this in our newsletter. So if you want to sign up for it, um, certainly just jump to connect at uh, futureproofingnext.com. Uh, I had mentioned this earlier, so here's my, uh, here's my pitch to you. We have uh, born out of the pandemic, myself and Andrea and uh, a person named Rob out of Toronto had produced a guild. So a guild of uh, now upwards to about 300 people around the world that now surface insight around the world and its biggest challenges. We have two opportunities for you. We have an opportunity for you to talk about leadership. Um, so if you go to the bit.ly, Link there, we're offering the opportunity for people to give their sense around what is post-pandemic leadership going to look like, much as we've talked about on today's call. And if you want to go long, uh, you can give us your own emergent opinion in terms of, uh, or point of view in terms of what that is at the bit.ly below as well. So we'd love for you to at least consider it. And uh, I'm certain we're going to use that feedback to drive some of our publications and websites. Next week, um, a different cast of people, but people that are very close to Future Proofing Next are going to do a research report on what we're calling Hope, Hard Truths and where we are going next. Um, I will humbly say that we have one of the best pieces of research out there in terms of making sense of the pandemic. My hope is you might wanna join us. Our next debate at Future Proofing Now is our own selfish debate or um, uh, webcast. We've got a future debate. So, I'm not too sure if we're picking teams, Andrew, where I pick my two people and you pick your two people and we go at it. Is it smarter data-driven change or intuitive creative leaps that gets us ahead in terms of better innovation? So um, yeah, we'll get jerseys and everything probably. And then finally, we are launching this very soon. Myself and Andrew were agonizing over page one, 212 the other day. And so, um, so the ink is nearly, nearly dry on this one. So uh, we're looking forward to getting our book out. Okay. So Andrew, in the last two minutes, you won't believe this. This is a first. Yes. Every single theme from the chat, which begins with a C, started with a letter C. So here we go. I will tell you what's been in the chat. So uh, co collaborative intelligence. There was a theme around discussing collaborative intelligence. And the sub-theme the sub of that is tech-enabled distributed cognition. So that was a really interesting set of insights that was on the chat that we'll also um, include. We'll do a write-up of this. Constellation, this feeling that, that location is not just going to be um, you know, home or work, but this feeling of a constellation of places, experiences, et cetera. Creativity, thank you, Kent. And maybe I'm gonna try to recruit Kent to be on my team for the creative versus, uh, for, the, for the debate that's coming up. Because this feeling that the latent human need, you know, what makes us different from all these robots we're gonna be sitting next to, is that we have innate creativity that is our purpose. And so creativity was another. Convergence was the next C. And convergence was interesting because um, things that didn't used to come together or have anything to do with each other at all, like your cat, your child, your annual report, um, you know, suddenly they're all sitting there and, and you can't deny that there are things around you that are converging. Co-creation, and my favorite one is in the chat, somebody thought I said procreation. We did not, although um, there's probably a whole episode on that, but we'll just talk about co-creation, the ability to imagine a future. You know, we don't, we don't believe in science fiction. I mean, it's nice to stimulate these thoughts, but it's really when you make things together in new environments that you imagine together, um, you know, that's co-creating and, and we really, that resonated. Uh, capitalism, I thought it was very interesting that we had uh, the same talk um, with the chat that you and I have had, which is, is capitalism dead? You know, what's the new form of capitalism? I think that's the last C. And then the final C was COVID. So we had collaborative intelligence, constellation, creativity, convergence, co-creation, capitalism, and COVID. Yes, I'll take C for 500. We've just built a new model, the eight C's model, right from our audience. So, um, so that's great. We should always implement the kind of just kind of uh, our audience kind of building stuff together. Oh, wait, there's a new one called Copathy, which is like empathy with a CO. So uh, thanks. And by the way, thank you to the entire group of audience people. And back to you, Sean. 
Great. Well, uh, we're about at the hour. I know we all run ourselves on another C, which is called calendar. And so uh, I'm guessing most of us have to get off. Um, we thank you for coming in. Come back two weeks from now. Look at uh, gracewangill.org. It's a group of people we're affiliated with, but we don't own, but we really love it. And um, on behalf of Andrea, Joanne, and everybody that's behind the scenes on this, um, we look forward to seeing you in the future.